Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, we're diving deep into your pantry to look at the wild and convoluted history of the Kellogg brothers. As always, foul language is to be expected, but in addition to that, we will be discussing some outdated and misguided medical practices, fear-mongering around sex and masturbation, and some very unethical ways of curing such things, as well as exploring the eugenics rush of the early 1900s. Strap in, it's time for another Human Exception. go so i don't like lose my mind <laughs> you think it's gonna get better <laughs> no because i know who you're talking about and i'm so excited all right okay i'll go next then um yeah. so what does breakfast cereal holistic treatment institutes arabian horses and abstinence have in common orgasm sperm and coming <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's all the same thing <laughs> that that's family. not the so. way i do it i don't know and well, I mean, <laughs> if you're a dude, they're all kind of oh happening at the same time. Oh, oh God. Okay. Um, so, John Harvey Kellogg is who we're here to talk about. Um, just don't have to say his full name the entire time. I am just going to call him J.H. Deal with it. And here's a picture of this guy and his amazing mustache. Hell yeah. I mean, so, facial hair game on fucking point. <laughs> right? Alright, so he was born in 1852 um, and was one that would be oh, was, would be one of 17 children in total. Uh, most of JH's youth is really not important, uh, but there's one aspect that I want to talk about and that is uh, Papa Kellogg sought long and hard to find a religion that did it for him and that he could raise a family in. Until eventually he landed on the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And fuck, do we need to talk about these guys? Oh my god, Seventh-day Adventist. I'm oh, here yeah. for it. Let's go. Yeah. So, a religious sect was established in 1863, with one of its founders being a woman, no less, who claimed to get visions from God. Oh. Yeah, yeah, you heard that right. <laughs> okay. Sure. Yep. So, but, but to board this crazy train, we need to hop back in time a little bit. So, August 1831. A preaching farmer named William Miller stood in the town square of Dresden, New York, and declared that the second advi- advent of Christ was coming, saying that the Son of God would visit between 1843 and 44. Somewhere in those two years, Christ would show up and the world would be judged. And people didn't give a shit until, like, he wrote a 16 part article that got published in a, in a Baptist newspaper. <laughs> and then he started getting letters, and people were super into it, and we got a new Christian schism. So by the 1840s, Miller had become a really big deal. The movement got its own name, which is the Miller Rights. And but then the summer of 1844 came and there was still no sign of Jesus. So it was decided that Jesus would be making his reservation on October 22nd, 1844. And the day in question came. And instead of me describing it, here's a quote by one of the Millerites, Henry Emmons. I waited all Tuesday, October 22nd, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday. And was well in body as I ever was, but after twelve o'clock I began to feel faint. And before dark I need someone to help me up to my chamber. 
as my natural strength was leaving me fast. I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment. I'm sorry. You said dear Jesus, and all I could picture was Jesus as like a deer. <laughs> I got stuck on that. And then he's like, oh, woe is me. I need my fainting couch. And yeah. I, 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 oh God, I'm here for it. So, and a disappointment it was. It was so phenomenal that it is known as the Great Disappointment. This is an actual historic event called the Great Disappointment. So people were pretty bummed out by this, and many of the Millerites just kind of threw in their towels and said, fuck it. But the devoted few argued that Miller's calculations hadn't been wrong. They were just, his interpretation had just been flawed. That Jesus wasn't scheduled to arrive on Earth, but at the most holy place of heavenly sanctuary. Instead, on that date. Um, his tour to Earth hadn't been cancelled. He was just preparing the courtroom for all that judging that he would have to do. Seriously, you can't make this shit up. Oh, God. Well, you okay, can, right? but... Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you right now. This is all real fucking familiar. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Uh, JWs are kind of shot off from the Millerites, so there's there's a connection here. Nathan will be very familiar with some of this. Oh boy. Um. So yeah, these remaining Millerites split into several new loosely loosely knit religious groups known as Adventists. The members of these groups attended a variety of different churches, but for one sec, the thing that bonded them together was a publication known as the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, written and published by James White. And who was at the center of this? James's wife, Ellen G. White. See, shortly after the Great Disappointment, Ellen was struck with a vision from God. And not long after, she'd meet her husband and he would validate her visions. She indeed was hearing the word of God and they needed to tell a world about it and thus they published it. And I've got oh. a picture of this lovely lady for you. Yes, p- yes, please. Good. Oh, okay. So yeah, that's there's Helen G. White. So, um, and this is how the group that would become the Seventh Day Adventist would come to be. And this is the best part. Do you have any guesses on what inspired Ellen's faith in God? Just any guess at all? I was no. going to say something really heinous, so I'm not going to. <laughs> When she was nine years old, no. she she was hit in the face with a rock. Oh, brain injury! Brain injury! Quote, this misfortune, which for a time seemed so bitter and was hard to bear, has proved to be a blessing in disguise. The cruel blow which blighted the joys of earth was means of turning my eyes to heaven. I might never have known Jesus Christ had not the sorrow that clouded my early years led me to seek the comfort in him. Brain injury. <laughs> Could very well be. There's no information about like, was she actually injured from this rock? Like, was it like you know a five year old throwing a rock and it just kind of bounced off your head and it was a bit of a bruise? Like I don't know, but whatever it was, apparently really fucking upset her and made her believe in God. So there, there is a real fine line between like what happens to people who have traumatic brain injuries or get hit in the fucking face or the skull with a hard object and whether they become a serial killer or a prophet. Religious. <laughs> <laughs> the line is so goddamn thin. Or sometimes both. Or sometimes <laughs> both. Yeah. Yeah. So um yeah. yeah, so that's that's the Seventh Day Adventist. That how they how they came to be is their woman getting visions from God that got hit in the head with a rock. That is a golden plate away from Mormonism, and I'm here for right. it. Like she's fucking crazy. Like I kind of want to do something about her later. But anyways. <laughs> So we're flashback to Kellogg's. Um, Papa Kellogg and a handful of very successful businessmen were super into the White's publication. 
And they eventually try to convince the Whites to come to Battle Creek, Michigan with their publishing business, which yes. they did in 1855. I know where Battle Creek is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to learn a lot about your state in this. Woohoo. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, which, so they came in 1855 after receiving huge sums of monies from the believers, including Kellogg Sr. So they literally, like, um, I think it was Kellogg paid the most money was $500 at the time to Ooh. convince them to come here. So, which is a lot of money. That's for a me, lot. 55? Yeah. 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 So they paid these people to move to Battle Creek, which is what a name for a town. Um, so when you pay for your profit and your religious leaders to kind of relocate, you want to kind of be there. So Kellogg Sr. moved his family from Tyrone, Michigan to Battle Creek, where he would then establish a broom factory. J.H. would be four at the time. Oh. Wait, brooms? Yeah. Brooms. Brooms. Like sweepy, sweepy, brushy, brushy, broom? Exactly. Yep. Okay. Broom, broom. So the group would have formally established themselves as a church until 1863, but it didn't stop them from practicing. Papa Kellogg was all about the church, believing fervently in all the beliefs, most of which are your typical Christian fare, like attend church on a weekend, keep your body pure through eating kosher and not consuming alcohol or tobacco, no sex until marriage, and no gays unless you're not actively practicing. So... <laughs> but one of their best beliefs is that Christ was coming any day now, and we had to be ready. So there was no point in formal education for your children. What? So J.H. only attended public school from the ages of 9 to 11, graduating to broom sorting in his dad's factory. <laughs> oh. My God. I swear, this guy's going to totally grow up and be totally fine, and he's going to have a healthy relationship with the Oh, family. yeah. <laughs> It'll be fine. Yeah. This is okay. fine. So while J.H. couldn't go to school, he was a voracious reader, and this passion led him to educate himself on a wide variety of topics. At 12, the Whites offered J.H. a job at the publishing company, and he rose quickly from errand boy to editorial work. So J.H. was a believer through and through, so the opportunity to spend time with the Whites and the very leaders of his church thrilled him to no end. Among the projects that he worked on with the Whites was editing and setting articles for a publication that would later be known as the Good Health Journal and was ripe with Ellen's theory for good health, as you would expect. <laughs> Ellen was very serious about her good health. So J.H. absorbed all this like a sponge and followed her recommendations, such as vegetarianism. Um, Ellen would describe her relationship with her husband's relationship with J.H. as closer than the one with their own children. <laughs> so J.H. wanted to become a teacher, and at 16, he taught at a district school in Hastings, Michigan. By 20, he had enrolled in a teacher's training course offered by the Michigan State Normal School, which is now known as East, Eastern Michigan, Michigan U, but Michigan State Normal School. Um, but due to pressure from both the Kellogg's and the Whites, J.H. joined his half-brother and some of the white children in a six-month medical course at Russell Trawls Hygiotherapeutic College in Florence Township, New Jersey. The goal of these two industrious families was to develop a group of trained doctors for the Adventist-inspired Western Health Reform Institute in Battle Creek. So from here, J.H. would then attend medical school in Ann Arbor in New York City, and he graduated in 1875 with a medical degree. One year later, he'd become the director of the Western Health Reform Institute, which he then renamed the following year to the Battle Creek Medical Surgical Sanitarium. Coining the term sanitarium meant to imply both medical care as well as more promote the importance of sanitation and personal health. So within 10 years of J.H. taking over the SAN, as it was known, the Institute went from treating 300 patients a year to 1,200. And even in 1906, the Institute had 7,000 guests and over 800 staff. So this place was huge. 
And it wouldn't be long for four days. Wait, wait, wait. Sorry. How many staff? 800. Holy fucking fuck. Right? It's fucking wild. So it wouldn't be long before J.H.'s brother, um, W.K., would join the staff of the sanitarium, leaving behind their father's broom factory in favor of helping J.H. manage his empire. So W.K. was younger, is younger, um, probably by like eight years. And yeah, joined up with his, I'm going to show you a picture, joined up with his brother at the sanitarium and basically was his little bitch. And J.H. had him do everything. Just follow him around everywhere, take care of the grounds, manage the, like, accounts and all that uh, sort of stuff. I feel bad for this hero. little nerd. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yeah, let's talk about the Battle Creek Sanitarium. So, as J.H. described the sanitarium, it was a composite of physiological method comprising hydrotherapy, phototherapy, thermotherapy, electrotherapy, mechanotherapy, dietetics, physical... Physical culture, cold air cure, eugenics, and health training. So what does that mean exactly? Well, it was a boarding house that was also a clinic, hospital, spa, personal growth center. They did all the normal things that clinics and hospitals do, like diagnosis, treatment, and surgery. But what it prided itself in was this holistic approach to betterment. JH's belief was that personal health was a multifaceted thing, and that to be truly healthy, it wasn't just about your body that needed to be healthy, but also your mind, your spirit, and your morals, most importantly. So this meant that treatments for ailments weren't just straight-up silver bullets. If your appendix was bursting, JH would remove it, but he would also assign you a diet and exercise regimen to help you get to your best self, even a better self than you were before, all sprinkled in with dozens of creative therapies that the San offered. So, a picture of... The building. So I believe the church um, bought this building. It was originally like a farmhouse or something, and it got converted into the sand and then expanded on. Um, you see, there's a picture at the bottom there. Is that 1876? I think. This is fucking huge. Wow! Holy crap! Yeah, and so like, JH was super passionate about this whole like holistic thing. He wanted it to be like not only you're coming to get healed, but you're coming as a rest and vacation you know, just become your best self. It's a whole thing. So that's kind of an ad that was out there that I sent you there, the real rest vacation. Huh. And I picture I was going to send. Picture of the dining room. So this place was fucking elaborate as shit. See this beautiful dining room that's massive with pillars and like vines and all sorts of stuff. Holy fuck. Yeah, they weren't fucking around. No. It's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. Wow. So in 1879, J.H. would marry Ella Eaton, who developed the same passion for holistic care as her husband, and also joined him in his work at the sanitarium. Ella was bright, having attended Elford University and the American School Household of Economics. Americans? That seems wrong. The American School Household Economics. So, yeah, basically had to be a housewife, I'm sure. That's what that was about. But she did attend university, and she was quite bright. So she ended up being a lot of help to her husband. There's a picture of her. So J.H. believed that God and medicine were intrinsically linked, which was a very controversial idea at the time. Many churches were scared mm-hmm. that science would kill God, and the Seventh-day Adventists were no exception. Even though their leaders were the ones responsible for sending J.H. to medical school and putting him in charge of a medical facility... They began to get concerned that with all his exploration of medicine and alternative therapies, that he was at risk of losing his faith. 
1878, J.H. was bought before the 17th annual session of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, I hate that word, where the leaders of the church expressed their concerns and tried to pressure J.H. to take a step back from his more controversial ideas. And this would be the beginning of tensions that would grow, only grow as the years wear on. Now, it's around this time that J.H.'s mentor in the Seventh-day Adventist prophet, Ellen, began to doubt her protege's commitment to the cause. In 1902, tensions were rising with the church, which was only aggravated by J.H.'s attempt to get his book, The Living Temple, published through the White's Publishing Company, which the Adventists were aggressively against as it contained some of J.H.'s more controversial ideas of harmony between the Bible and science. Oh, God. Horrifying. Um, Science and God can't exist at the same time. So (laughs) J.H. would end up hiring a private printer, but in December 1902, while everything was ready for the book to get printing, the publishing building caught fire. And this was just the beginning of J.H.'s fire troubles. Oh, my God. God. (laughs) One one pressing concern for the church was the sanitarium. It had been founded and was paid for by the church, but J.H. was the one running it with his heathenistic views. It's because of this that when the sanitarium burnt to the ground... Ellen said that it was the cleansing sword of holy fire and that had been had done the task and was vehemently against rebuilding the institute. I got a picture of the fire for you. It was God's flaming sword of holy justice. Jesus. Worse than Damocles. Yeah. Let me see here. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. So of the 400 guests that were there at the time, only two didn't make it. Um, one having run back in to find his money that he'd stashed in his room. Oh, no, <laughs> don't do that. Yeah. Don't do that. You uh, <laughs> are fucking but, stupid. <laughs> but, but the property loss was estimated between 300000 to 400000 about twice what it was insured for. So despite his protest, J.H. was able to get the board of directors support to not just rebuild the Institute, but double it in size. And it reopened on May 31st, 1903, this time built in fireproof brick and six stories high. Got some more pictures for you. So this is the old building. Whoa. What the fuck? Holy shit. This is the new building. Jesus Christ. No, he... he what? Oh, yeah. That is, like, super, like, for the time, super modern looking. Like, yeah. It's very cool. Yeah, they it looks spent... like it's, like, out of the 50s or something. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah and they spent over $700,000 to rebuild the Institute, at, you know, what? in 1903. So, like, we're talking oh. millions now. Oh, okay. So a good chunk of this was funded by J.H.'s book, which was finally managed to be able to get published that year, um, much to the chagrin of Alan and the church, and also Serial helped funded this, which we'll get to shortly. <laughs> In 1907, J.H. was finally disfellowshipped by the church. Despite, the, despite this, he managed to keep control of the Battle Creek Sanitarium and the American Medical Missionary College that he founded, and continued to promote Adventist ideas of health and well-being at the, those institutions up until his death in 1943. J.H. continued to speak positively about the church and even Ellen, citing her as a massive influence on his life and admitted that, like anyone, she was only human and thus fallible. 
Maybe ironically, though, today the, Se- the Seventh-day Adventists proudly recognize J.E.H. as one of their own, quoting, quoting him and praising his success and ignoring the fact that, he, fact that he'd been disfellowed. <laughs> like, that's, that's, like, websites for the Seventh-day Adventists. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, J.E.H. was, like, one of our pioneering fucking guys. This yeah. feels... I, I have officially gone down Crazy River, and Jesus Christ, all right. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it's it's interesting because even in like JW doctrine and the whole their whole community they will decry science and they'll be like you're spending too much time like believing the worldly views and and you know believing those scientists that are put there by satan until until something scientific backs up what of course is said in the bible and then they're like see science and we all want. can be you know can live harmoniously uh, religion really has come a long way if you think about it like most modern religions these they do accept technology but yeah it back at no <laughs> makes me crazy right so the question is, what was G.H. doing that was so damn controversial that his church fucking kicked him out? So, like, he was a skilled surgeon. He'd often donate a service to impoverished patients at his clinic, and he was generally against unnecessary surgery. And he'd attracted a fair number of notable patients over the years. Some of these being former President William Howard Taft, Amelia Earhart, economist Irving Fisher, the founder of the Ford Motor Company, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, the African-American activist Sojourner Truth, and the actress Sarah Bernhardt. That That's is just a small sample of the people. A that... very strange mix. Yep. Right? Known anti-Semist. <clears throat> Ford. And then... An African-American uh, activist. Yeah, I'm so confused right now. So uh, here's a picture of him his later years. Um, what? The whoa, the owner of DM Session has requested the Discord block any messages are mostly accurate bots deem explicit. So your message has not been sent. What? You broke Discord. But apparently. You are trying to upload porn. What are you doing? Let me see if I can just like crop it or something. Fucking Discord. Fucking fucking fuck. Are we There you go. I mean clearly that's porn. I mean, right? This is guy, this old fucking white dude with a baller mustache and a cockatoo on his shoulder wearing a full white suit. Up, you said cock. It's porn. Cock out the window. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, he loved to wear white suits. That was a whole thing, by the way. Like, and apparently Colonel Saunders was like inspired by this. Shut (laughs) up. Right. Everything comes back to these fuckers, really. Of course, you'll find out. Goddamn. So he invented and improved a plethora of medical instruments, but he never did it for profit. J.H. had become very much a leader in progressive health reform, and his work and notoriety led to many breakthroughs in medicine, and some great and some not so great. He wrote extensively on science and health for his methodology of biologic living, is what he called it, which combines scientific knowledge and Adventist belief. Um, Quote, this was the idea that the appropriate diet, exercise, and recreation was required in order to maintain a healthy body, mind, and soul. 
As such, the policies and therapies at the Battle Creek Sanitarium were very much in line with these principles of biologic living, such as the focus on vegetarianism, drinking 8 to 10 glasses of water a day. In fact, his his belief with biologic living was he he protected his health so strongly that he didn't even feel like it was necessary to get vaccinated against smallpox. Mm. So yeah, today he would totally be an anti-vaxxer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'd be like, you're putting that poison in your veins. Now, his reason for that being, though, is like, because he thought his he had made his body so pure that he didn't need it. Not that he didn't believe in vaccines. So there's that difference, but still. Oh, well, I mean. I guess I guess there's a difference between, like, saying vaccines cause autism and. Yeah. My science has made me pure enough that I don't need vaccines. Yeah. There is a difference. It's still fucking bullshit and crazy. This is the better side of the anti-vax argument, but it's still bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus Christ. So, but the idea that health was more than just ailments and injuries was a blah, blah, blah. But the idea that health was more than just ailments and injuries and instead was actually tied deeply with emotional and mental state and was greatly impacted by the things that you consumed was absolutely revolutionary for the time. We have to remember that during this time that he was practicing mercury is thought to be a cure-all and coca-cola was considered mm. medicine <laughs> right 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 oh fuck okay but a little bit of coke is good medicine <laughs> it does mm. actually help my migraines well no are we talking about coca-cola or coca <laughs> drug yes <laughs> yes <laughs> um so jh documented his philosophy into seven textbooks that were prepared for the adventist schools and colleges emphasizing the importance of fresh air, exercise, and sunshine, while warning of the dangers of alcohol and tobacco. So like you were saying, Ali, like, this guy could totally, like, sounds like Elrond Hubbard. Dude, if these guys had lived at the same time, oh. they would have been best friends. 100%. Best friends or would have stood on opposite street corners yelling at each other about how wrong the other one was. That's possible, too. I would have paid to watch the latter. <laughs> right? That's a, that's a historical rap battle I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> So J.H.'s beliefs cover so many topics, methodologies. I'm just going to try and break them down here and cover them as quickly as possible, even though everyone's fucking hilarious. So yeah, tobacco, super bad. He was really part of the anti-tobacco campaign and spoke often about the issue that, that causes like physiological damage, but also causes pathological, nutritional, moral, and economic devastation onto society. He said that tobacco has not a single redeeming feature and is one of the most deadly of all the many poisonous plants known to a botanist. Um, I mean, yeah, okay. like, and, and in his 1922 book called Tobaccoism or How Tobacco Kills, Kellogg cited many of the negative impacts of smoking and went so far as to attribute the longer lifespan of women to the observation that they partook in t- tobacco much less than their male partners. Hmm. Which is kind of funny. Not true, but funny. <laughs> I'm sure there is there's some application there, but just women just generally live longer. <laughs> um. Yeah, alcohol, bad. At the time, um, though, it was a common belief that alcohol was a stimulant and even a valuable therapeutic tool that many doctors prescribed in tonics or cocktails. A common example of this is it would be prescribed for the Spanish influenza and pneumonia. Here, just drink it away. <laughs> so, J.H. Was not, did not buy this at all. He said that it was not a stimulant because it lessened vital activity and depressed vital forces. Um... He's seeing the effects on plants, humans, and animals. He felt that alcohol was poison. Um, not only did he believe that it had horrible effects on the body, it was also damaging to the mind and morality. 
Alcohol was one of the devil's most efficient agents for destroying the happiness of man, both for the present and the hereafter. Even moderate drinkers were subject to these effects, as J.H. felt that all poison was poison, no matter the doses. So no alcohol. Okay. And then caffeine. Like, uh, I mean, did you really expect this? (laughs) This No. No, because I'm getting severe Mormon vibes. So that's like... (laughs) Yeah, so tea and coffee, anything high in caffeine, not good. Caffeine was poison. Um, it was also led to believe to moral deficiencies. <laughs> you noticing a trend yet? Ooh, ooh, okay. Quote, nature has supplied us with pure water with a great, great variety of fruit juices and wholesome and harmless flavors quite sufficient to meet all our needs. We don't need this caffeine. Um, okay. So vegetarianism. So obviously with his painful substances, he had a lot of strong beliefs when it came to nutrition. First of all, he believed nutrition was an actual thing and that humans needed vitamins and minerals and a balanced diet to be healthy, which is totally legit and was revolutionary at the time. People were so scared of fruits and vegetables at the time that they thought if you ate three tomatoes in a day, it could kill you. Right. <laughs> yep. They just did not. No. So, but like everything JH does, um, he would take it to the extreme. So. Vegetarianism obviously was not fucking popular at all at this time. So there wasn't like you could go in and get prepared products from the grocery store or anything like that. So he would turn to his brother and his wife and the three of them would begin to experiment to see if they could develop products for the patients at the SAM. So it was, uh, the SAM was equipped with an experimental kitchen where Ella would help develop the new foods and supervise classes on food preparation for homemakers. She even published a cookbook, Science in the Kitchen, containing hundreds of recipes along with discussions of nutrition and household diet management. So this is a woman well fucking ahead of her time. Like, here's how you meal plan. Here's how you figure out how much, you know, you make sure you get the nutrition that you need. Like, it's wild to think that that's, that that was happening at that time. <laughs> uh, so yeah, through their experiments, they developed a ton of products and processes that came into food production that we still use today. Their ideal diet was low in protein and rich with high fiber foods, so many of their products were designed around this theory. And whether or not he intended it, he became the first creator and distributor of health food. So, some of their products peanut butter. The history of peanut butter is an extremely complex one, and half a dozen people are credited with its creation. One of those names was J.H. He really liked nuts a lot. Um, they believed that he could, they could save mankind in the face of decreasing food supplies. And would invent the process of making peanut butter, though he never patented it explicitly. As he would say, let everybody that wants it have it and make the best use of it. So yeah, peanut butter. I love peanut butter. Peanut I ain't mad at peanut butter, butter. but, you know. <laughs> um, beyond meat. So you're probably not surprised of vegetarianism that you had to come up with a solution otherwise to make meat not be there. So him and his wife came up with two products. Nuttose, which was created in 1896, which is a product made of peanuts and resembled cold roast mutton and with seasoning and marinating could taste like fried chicken or barbecue. Oh, no. How much of that's true is hard to say. Um, And in 1901, he patented the first vegetable substitute for meat, which was a blend of nuts and grain cereals called protose. And I've got a picture of one of the product uh, ads or whatever. God, ads from that time. Ugh. Appetizing meatless meals your whole family will rave about. Wow. Vegetable meat. Vegetable meat. Vegetable meat. 
And uh, here's a kind of one of the crates of like for if you're buying food products and stuff. Oh, I fucking love that old style. That old style of yeah, the, of like packaging. It's so mm-hmm. good. Yeah, so they are the first people to make like meat substitutes, and also they made soy milk in 1934. Um, he also made a product under the name of Granula. But there was a legal problem as there was another product with the same name. So he changed it to granola. And you can guess which product was more successful. Because I was like, what the fuck is granola? (laughs) All right. The part you've been waiting for is cereal. So WH, you've seen WK, JH, and Ella would pioneer the process of making flake cereal in 1894. Pretty much what happened is they rolled a bunch of dough, forgot about it overnight. And then the next day, like, they like, oh, well, shit, they decided to run it through the rollers anyways. And it came up with this whole, like, flake product. And that is how cereal came to be. Pretty much what it was is that WK was like, well, shit, look what happened. And JH was like, well, fucking throw it out. And WK was like, no, let's try this. And then the people at the stand fucking loved it. They were all over it. Like, we've made a new breakfast thing. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, obviously, there's a bit of a debate about exactly who was the original creator of the idea, but all three of them did work on the product. Um, JH was thrilled and wanted to make it commercially available, like his other food items, but not necessarily to make money. Um, He just wanted to be able to make the product available to people who wanted to follow his dietary suggestions. But WK wanted to keep it a secret, so JH compromised and only allowed those at the sand to see the process. One of these patients was a man named C.W. Post, who was at the stand to try and find a cure for his reoccurring mental breakdowns in 1891. They say the only way to keep a secret is to not tell anyone, but you could trust your patients, right? It's not like C.W. Post would find his cure for his mental illness by stealing this idea, making his own company, and making millions of dollars under the name of Post Cereals, right? (laughs) But hey, I'm sure people completely forgot about Post Cereals, and there's no way that it went on to become General Foods and even Kraft Foods for a short while. This is why we can't have nice things. I need to leave. Yeah, I need to go. <laughs> <laughs> but WK wouldn't take this laying down. He left the sanitarium and established his own business, the Sanitas Food Company in 1897, with the help of JH. And they would focus on whole grain cereals, and they'd push the boundaries of traditional breakfast foods. At this time, well-off families ate eggs and meat every morning, while the poor ate like porridge and gruel and boiled grains. So this completely changed the... Um, the landscape of breakfast foods as this became popular and like as jh like espoused how unhealthy like fatty like sausages and bacon and stuff were for you every morning and that's why like cereal's a thing <laughs> so yeah in the first year of production the kellogg sold tens of thousands of pounds of flake cereal marketed as granos and they continued to experiment with rice and corn and flour and wheat so in 1898, they released their first batch of the Sanitas Toasted Corn Flakes. I've got an awesome picture for you. Here's this young maiden hugging some stalks of corn. Oh, of course. <laughs> Everybody needs to cuddle some corn sometimes. <laughs> oh, boy. So, um... <laughs> Tensions between the brothers would eventually reach 
ahead when WK suggested that they begin to add sugar to their cereal, which JH was not into because plain food only. Um, we have to assume that someone lost because in 1906, WK would found Battle Creek Toasted Cornflake Company that would eventually become the Kellogg Company that we know today. Um, this would be the beginning of a 10-year feud between the brothers. All right, back to JH. So among other things that JH believed in, he believed in gut flora, that like there are bacterial germs in your stomach and that they're really, or like in your intestinal lining, which were very important to your overall health, which no one believed in germ theory at the time. <laughs> so this was all new. Uh, but his solution to this was like, if he thought that it was due to your gut flora being out of alignment was um, he was going to give you a water enema. And then this might, you... be, this might be my favorite <laughs> bit of history on the, the whole water. I, yeah, keep going. Um, he would then he then administer the patient with a pint of yogurt, half to eat and half to go on the other end to fertilize your intestines. I need to never hear fertilize your intestines. I need to leave. No, you. No, we would like you to stay, please. Um, he was also really into hydrotherapy, which, like, he's like, fucking water's amazing, guys. The chemical compounds, woof, it's awesome. Um, which he loved to use it as, like, a refrigerated, refrigerant to, like, lower the body temperature, as well as a sedative. He, one of the things he's like is, like, you know, hot baths may sedative. soothe pain when every other drug has failed. Which is not I, wrong. I, yeah, I mean, but... But he was also completely, he also realized that hydrotherapy was... A like it had its limits so he was very quick to criticize what he called cold water doctors doctors that prescribe oh. a cold bath or other water treatments during the harshest oh. environments and worst maladies he recounts an incident where a patient with low typhus fever was treated with 35 ice packs while in a feeble state and died <laughs> no so he's like y'all are fucking around with water too much you don't need to go this crazy with it no stop it Oh, All right. no. Okay. Yeah, he posits this excessive and dangerous use of hydropathy as a result, as a return to the violent processes of bloodletting, atamani, mercury, and progenitives. <laughs> um, cleanliness, he was super into cleanliness. Uh, again, the whole bacteria, germ theory thing. Um, at this time, Americans had one bath a week on Saturday evenings. Um, he said that people should have baths every day. Um, not only just for cosmetic purposes, but also because when you sweat, you exert toxins onto your skin. And if you leave them there, you're going to get sick. So he is the inventor of uh, modern hygiene in a way. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, exercise. He'd be allowed to daily exercise was a big part of your overall health, but knew it was a challenge to get the American people on board. So he began to make exercise machines for the sand to help encourage this activity. And he may be the first recorded exercise program in history when in 1920s, the Columbia Gramophone Company produced a set of recordings based off of his carefully planned fitness regime. This fucker did everything. Um, electrotherapy, also known by a less terrifying moniker as vibrational therapy, uh, was discovered in 1884 and he used what was high frequency oscillation that could increase blood circulation and worked as a passive exercise. One of the many inventions that he made was the electrotherapy exercise bed that if used for 20 minutes would create muscle stimulation equivalent to a brisk four mile walk. 
He was also doing a bunch of other stuff, but I'm just going to send you pictures. So he was super into like sunbathing and like phototherapy, as he called it, that like he thought that is really important for the overall health. So he made a sunbox, essentially, that you could sit in to like get light. And this is obviously for like times a year when there wasn't as much sun, but also for people who were sensitive to the sun and would need to adjust to being post the sun for long periods. Hmm. I mean, I'm not mad at it. Um, he was super into breathing exercises, so here's a picture of a breathing exercise that he did, or that he had, okay. had his people host. Okay. That thing's like an early version of a sad lamp. It's just like a sad room. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of cool. Um, this is um, the people sunbathing outside. And this is um, a static electrical therapy. It just like, puts you in a cage that like gives put static electricity around you and he thought that it would help benefit the human body. Hmm. So kind of neat. So we wouldn't be here though if this was all roses and sunshine, so it's time to talk about abstinence. At <laughs> <laughs> this point most of the stuff is pretty good. Maybe some like misguided, but the intentions were all good. But yeah, so sex is bad, it sullies the soul, and thus should only be participated in for the intention of reproduction. He was really into suppressing sexual desire, and one way he could do this was through the con- consumption of bland food, as inspired by Ellen White and Sylvester Graham. So Graham is the guy who inspired the creation of the Graham Cracker, who believed that a plain diet would prevent sexual arousal, and that temptation could be completely avoided by not consuming stimulating foods, drinks, and eating very little meat. Um, he warned that sexual activity, including excesses in couples, could be guilty... Uh, Excesses in a married couple is extremely unhealthy. So, like, you as a married couple, if you really only have sex, have kids. Any excess sex is not good for you. Um, and though Graham died from an opium enema in 1851, I'm not really sure we should be taking his advice. An opium enema. Opi- I Yeah, that shorted my brain out for a minute. Uh, okay. So, yeah, abstinence. Really, and like he would talk a lot about sexually transmissible disease, especially syphilis at the time was not curable. It didn't get a cure until the nineteen right. tens. Right. So he's like, guys, don't have sex, fucking syphilis. <laughs> like, <laughs> the shit is bad. <laughs> don't go fucking. You'll get sick. Yeah, like, and he's not wrong. Syphilis was horrible. Like, it rot yeah. your brain. Like, you oh, don't totally. want that. Um. So yeah, he devoted a large amount of time educating and doing medical work and finding ways to discourage sexual activity. So he used the danger of STD beliefs of the church as strong points against rampant sex. Um, Even though he was married to Ella in 1879, the couple would maintain separate bedrooms and they never had any biological children. Though they did foster 42 children and legally adopted eight of them before Ella died in 1920. Many say that their marriage had never been consummated. (laughs) But she seemed to be into it as they spent their honeymoon writing together, writing 156 pages of updated material for his book on sex, Plain Facts for the Young and Old. Like, I guess if you're going to be abstinence in your marriage, then you, your partner should be on board with it. I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Good communication. Brava. Let me just yeah. clap for you. But, I mean, you know. I may have been asexual. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. We're something that they wouldn't have had a word for, precisely. But it's just like, yeah. oh boy. <laughs> now... Interestingly, though, despite his beliefs in abstinence, he also had a strong belief in sexual education. 
In the same book, it goes into intense detail of the reproduction of plant functions in plants and animals and humans and advises parents to speak to their children about this as soon as their child shows any interest. So while he was promoting abstinence, it wasn't like abstinence, abstinence through ignorance. It was abstinence through education, which I can get behind that. Like, if you're going to promote ab abstinence, at least, like, tell people the actual risks. Yeah. Um, so obviously, if sex is bad, masturbation is bad. Um, he hated it. A belief, he, he, like, all his beliefs, he pulled upon the Bible and medicine to support his beliefs. One of his favorite sources was a guy named Dr. Adam Clark, who was quoted as saying, Neither the plague, nor war, nor smallpox, nor similar diseases has produced results so disastrous to humanity as the pernicious habit of an onanism. Which is basically self-pleasure. So yeah, worse than war and smallpox and diseases and plagues is masturbation. Well, shit. So, and J.H. had his own words to say on this topic, basically claiming that masturbate, claiming masturbated-related deaths, such as a victim literally dies by his own hand. <laughs> he felt that masturbation destroyed not only physical and mental health, but moral health as well. He also that believed the practice... One of the saddest things I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. He also so believed like, the practice... Sorry? Is the young kids were like super into masturbation and it was like flick it till you kick it like yeah pretty much this is belief um he also believed the practice of the solitary vice caused cancer of the womb urinary disease nocturnal emissions impotence epilepsy insanity mental and physical debility and dimness of vision he thought masturbation was the worst evil that one could commit he often referred to it as self-abuse <clears throat> people still refer to it as self-abuse. Yeah, he probably coined that. <laughs> fucking hilarious. Now, he was such an advocate against masturbation, he even encouraged genital mutilation to help prevent temptation. Even circumcising himself no. at age 37. Stop You can't it. say he didn't practice what he preached. Holy Jesus shit nuts. Christ. So here's a good quote. So a remedy which is almost always successful in small boys is circumcision, especially when there is a degree of phimosis, which is like a tightness of the foreskin. Uh, the operation should be performed by a surgeon without administering an anesthetic, as the brief pain attended the operation will have a salutary effect on the mind, especially if it be connected with the idea of punishment, as it may no. well be in some cases. The soreness which continues for several weeks interrupts the practice, and if it had not previously become too firmly fixed, it may be forgotten and not resumed. Further, a method of treatment to prevent masturbation uh, we've applied to full satisfaction and consists of the application of one or more silver, silver, sutures, silver sutures in such a way as to prevent the erection. The prepuce or foreskin is drawn forward over the glands and a needle to which the wire is attached is passed through from one side to the other. After drawing the wire through, the ends are twisted together and cut off closed. It is now impossible for an erection to occur, and the slight irritation thus produced acts as a most powerful means of overcoming the disposition to resort to the practice. And in females, the authors found that the application of pure cabalic acid to the clitoris as an excellent means of allaying the abnormal excitement. Oh, come, oh, come on. Oh, come uh, on. Off. Staple your dick closed and burn off your clit with acid. Oh, fuck me. Yep, 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 yep. Wow. That's some kind of shit. 
He also Ooh. recommends that to prevent children from this solitary vice, bandaging or tying their hands, covering their genitals with a pat with patented cages and electrical shock, and in his ladies' guides and health ladies' guides and health and disease for nymphomania, he recommends cool sits bath, the cool enema, a spare diet, the application of blisters or other irritants to sexual to sensitive parts of sexual organs, and the removal of the clitoris or and nymphi. So like full actual general mutilation. Yeah, that's fucked. Yeah, so not good at all. So basically, his whole thing about selective breathing, he loves and like he's fascinated by livestock and how and other domestic animals and how we've carefully selected partners to get ideal results. And he begins to get this idea about people. Which you can imagine where this is going. <laughs> um so yeah, it's like people need to consider wh who they're partnering with because, you know, whatever thoughts that they have will be passed on to their future child. <laughs> and so like, it's like one of the things he says is that the poor of our great city cities virtually spawn children with a little thought of influences and consequences as the fish that sows its eggs broadcast upon the water. It's not as great of an exaggeration as, a first, as it might seem at first. <laughs> We, who can tell how many of the liars, thieves, drunkards, murderers, and prostitutes of our day are less responsible for their crimes against themselves, against society, and against heaven than those that were instrumental at bringing them into the world? Almost every village has a boy that was born drunk, a staggering, simpering, idiotic representation of a drunken father, beastly intoxicated at the very moment when he should be most sober. We're taking sins of the father a little too literally here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you can guess where this is leading. Let's talk about eugenics. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure it starts with an E. <laughs> Give me an E. <laughs> All right, never mind. So, in the early 20th century, more people were coming to North America than ever before. The old white men that were afraid of the gene pool getting diluted began to get real scared, which caused an upsurge of interest in eugenics. The influence of immigration was a massive threat to the American way, and no one else could see how precariously things were balanced. Once the gene pool was spoiled, there was no way to go back. Good stock can only be made by good breeding or by breeding good stock. And Jade felt similarly. He was in favor of racial segre segregation in the U.S., believing the immigrants and non-whites would damage the American gene pool. Quote, long before race reaches the state of universal incompetency, the impending danger will be appreciated. The cause sought for and eliminated. And through eugenics and euthenics, the mental soundness of the race will be saved. He spent his last 30 years promoting eugenics, or as he preferred to think of it, the science of improving human stock. In 1906, he and Irving Fisher and Charles Davenport founded the Race Betterment Foundation becoming the major center of new eugenics movement in America. Yeah, the Race oh, Betterment Foundation. The race... Oh, God. This whole thing about eugenics was that he believed that, the gene, that as the gene pool mixed, it would become weakened, and humans would develop disease and the health would degenerate with each generation, increasing alcoholism, poverty, criminality, sexual promiscuity, feeble-mindedness. Genes weren't really very well understood at the time, but since agriculture has been a thing, humans have known that introducing new genetics can help strengthen a line, and that inbreeding can cause it to be weaker, more successful disease. But what do I know? I'm a geneticist. So, and it wasn't just those of a different skin color that he wanted kicked out of the gene pool. He was in favor of sterilizing mentally defective persons, promoting a eugenics agenda while working on the Michigan Board of Health. 
and helping to enact the authorization to sterilize those who are deemed mentally defective and brought that into state law in 1913. Good job. Great. At least 3,800 people in the state were involuntarily sterilized. This is according to Kate Connor, a PhD candidate. Um, She said Michigan didn't have a central registry registry for eugenic sterilization. Most states had a central place where records got sent. It's an undercount, but it's around 3,800. They were all done under the 1929 law that legalized sterilizations for the purpose of eugenics, done on moral degenerates, sexual deviants, epileptics, the feeble-minded, or the insane. There's a whole monograph of what feeble-minded meant. It was less about intelligence and more about how you fit into society. Jesus Christ. Guess when this law got repealed? 1978. 1974. Oh, fuck, really? Yeah. And it is the fourth most of any state, the amount of sterilizations that they did. God damn. That's fucked up. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, So how do you ensure that you're only pairing up people with good genetics and morals? If only there was like a list of eligible partners or a eugenics registry. Wow. Yeah. So this idea behind. <laughs> yeah. Just. So his idea behind eugenics registry was to curate a good pedigree. Experts could use the registry to determine who would be good matches to create a better next generation, or at least prevent it from deteriorating. It's unclear what aspects gave someone a higher pedigree, but we can guess that's probably incredibly racist. So basically, but basically, we found that there's three national conferences that were being sponsored by the foundation, 1914, 1915, and 1928. These conferences helped advocate race betterment among the public. The foundation also worked with the eugenics, eugenics record office in Cold Spring Harbor to create a eugenics registry. The registry would provide children with pedigrees based on what they inherited from their parents. Oh. It was suggested that contests be held and awards be provided based on these pedigrees. So it was a dog show for not. people. Yeah. Wow. Yep. So the first uh, eugenics con was held in 1914 at the San. It was a five-day event gathering some of the greatest physicians, philanthropists, ac- academics, politicians, and reformers in the country with the intention to study the cause and find the cure of race degeneracy. <laughs> this is from an opening statement that J.H. said. If the race is degenerating, it is highly important that the world should know and, it, and we should have... To, the world should know it, and such agencies should be set in operations as to save the race of man from common fate of all other living forms, as foretold by the geological records of the Earth's crust. Like he was terrified that the human race was going to become extinct if we didn't like manage genetics. So there was 406 delegates for the con- delegates for the convention. Um, I got a picture. So this is a picture from the meal that was held. The guy in the white suit standing on the right there is J.H. Also, uh, here's the uh, front page of the like playbook. Ugh. So, oh, yeah, 406 delegation, delegates. But you know what takes balls? <laughs> inviting an African-American man, an African, inviting an African-American man to speak at a eugenics con. Cool. Cool story. You know, you know what takes more balls? Accepting that invite. So that's right. Booker T. Washington. 
She's an African American, African American educator, author, orator, and advisor to several presidents of the United States. He delivered his speech on the Negro race to a predominantly white audience inside the sanitarium chapel where he pleaded for fair treatment of African Americans. So here's a quote from that speech. We are more like you than any other race, aside from the color of our skin that comes into America. We speak the same language. We eat the same food that you do. We profess and we have all the ambitions and aspirations that you have. We understand the genesis of our local institutions. We have the same local national pride that you have. We love the same American flag with just as great as a fervor as you do. We are American citizens and we are going to stay here with you. And that means we are going to help you or we are going to hurt you. And we want you to help us to get to the point so that we can help you. We want to help you and we want to help ourselves. So that's just a small portion of Booker's speech. Uh, The whole thing can be read in the nearly 700 page playbook of this event, which includes a full list of attendants, speakers, and their speeches. The guy's got balls. Yep. Yeah, I don't, e- I don't even know what to do with that. Holy shit. I would be so curious to, under- to see like how that was received, if he got any sort right? of positive from it. Oh my gosh. And like, he was a special guest like invited by JH. So like, I can't imagine people would have fucked with him too much. I would but, hope not, but yeah. people are awful. Yeah. yeah. People are garbage. So along with more than 50 speeches, the first Race Betterment Conference included meetings, exhibits, entertainment, and a Better Babies contest featuring more than 5,000 children. The children were all inspected and measured and judged no. in their respective age categories. Organizations, no. organizations like the Eugenics Record Office would use such contestants to collect data to shape public opinion about eugenics. No. No. So the following year, the Race Race (laughs) Betterment Foundation snagged a prime spot up front and center at the Panama Pacific International Exhibit, an exhibit that drew in over 18 million people from around the world. And there was J.H. and his white superiority front and center. A picture of the booth here. (laughs) Courtney's just getting this all out of context. (laughs) (laughs) So at least 60 delegates spoke at this con, attracting a crowd of an estimated 10,000 with more than a million lines of newspaper coverage. So the third con, due to the outbreak of World War I, the eugenics movement kind of got put on hold as the world had more important things to worry about. But in 1922, the third eugenics con would be held in Battle Creek. This would be the peak of eugenics popularity in the U.S., interest rekindled by another large wave of immigrants. But it all kind of fell apart during the Great Depression as it woke up many Americans to the novel idea that poverty was not tied to hereditary heredity or genetics. Who knew? Eugenics only became more unpopular when a man with a funny mustache took things way too far in Germany in the 1940s. This wouldn't be the death of eugenics. It had just become more subtle and laws that indirectly supported the idea of eugenics still came into play. People just haven't been having cons for it anymore, at least not publicly. But that's another story. So the strangest thing about the ideas of the eugenics goes against many of J.H.'s other beliefs. He and his wife fostered 42 children, many of which were people of color. He was a huge advocate against segregation in the sand and gladly hiring and training doctors and nurses of color. He took great care of Sojourner Tooth during her visit to the sand, having suffered injuries fighting for racial justice reportedly grafting some of his own skin onto her leg as treatment. 
And Booker T. Washington, the whole reason he came to the first con was because three years prior, he had become incredibly sick and doctors were making no progress. So his wife found an African-American doctor that had been trained by J.H. who came and had Booker better than ever in six months of treatment. And he made him a total believer in all of J.H.'s life wellness. And in 1910, J.H. personally invited Booker to come visit the Santa as a guest. He must have J trusted J.H. enough to accept his invitation to the 1914 con as a speaker. And Booker credited J.H. with saving his life and opened his speech with a dedication to him. But you can't just say I have some friends that are black and call it a day. The evidence against J.H. was far greater than the evidence for him. This is a direct quote from him. The intellectual inferiority of the Negro male to the European male is universally acknowledged, as he wrote in 1902. Also, he didn't feel much better about Asians. He says, we can honestly say that there is a bit of white supremacy. Oh, this is someone talking about him. He wants to say there's a bit of a white supremacy in this. He was very concerned with Asians or the yellow peril, as it was called. He was very concerned Asians, especially Chinese, would be able to outcompete the West. He says, if we don't deal with this, we're going to be ruled by Orientals in the future. All yeah. right, buddy. So where does that I leave us? We don't. I believe that GH's beliefs in eugenics were rooted in his perception of flawed science more than a personal hatred or, or of the disabled mentally ill and those of other cultures. You know, it seemed that he actually believed that all these negative traits could be passed down and that mixing races would be detrimental to both races, but this does not forgive his beliefs or the work he did to promote them. The road to hell is paved with good intentions and ignorance. If he had lived past the Second World War, it would be interesting to see if his opinions had changed for the better or for the worse. As on a whole, the world's acceptance of eugenics as a philosophy dropped dramatically. But alas, he died in 1943 at 91 and left his entire estate to the Race Betterment Foundation. Oh. This left the foundation in charge of Battle Creek College and Battle Creek Food Company, providing them with a continuous source of funding. In 1947, the foundation had reached nearly 700000 in assets. But in 1967, it had a mere $492.87. And in that same year, the state of Michigan indicated the trustee, indicted the trustees for squandering the foundation's funds, and the foundation's was closed. So something happier. Remember that I promised you horses? <laughs> <laughs> I do now. <laughs> All right, so W.K., uh, the younger brother, um, who went off and made his Kellogg's empire. Here's a picture of him. He was really into Arabian, Arabian horses. So in 1925, he bought 370 acres, 77 acres of land upon Pomona, California, made an Arabian horse breeding ranch where he began breeding with some of the best stock in the world. He also would host weekly horse exhibitions, and some of these horses even started, started in Hollywood films. So it's cool, but what happened to him? WK would never receive a portion of the notoriety that his brother did, but he went on to do some pretty great things, and he never forgot his desire to make a better world. In the 1920s, he opened a free dairy care center in his main factory for his employees. The center paid for free medical and dental exams for the children as well. He had a strong desire to help to help give the children of his hometown the advantages that he didn't have as a child. His education had ended at 13 when he was apprenticed at his dad's broom factory. It was a childhood full of work and responsibility. Quote, as a boy, he would later say, say I never learned to play. We paid for the creation of a youth center, a public swimming pool, and a new elementary school that he named after his mother. In 1923, he created the Fellowship Corporation, which quietly funded charities throughout Battle Creek and southern Michigan. 
1930, he would establish the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, ultimately donating $66 million to it. Holy fuck. Yeah, and like, he died in the 1950s. $66 million at the time was a lot of money. Yeah. Kellogg confined the foundations giving to the health, education, welfare of mankind, but principally to the children or youth directly or indirectly with regard, without regard to sex, race, creed, or nationality. In large part, it was, res- it was a response to poverty strictures and labor of his own boyhood. But there was another reason. In 1913, his grandson, a toddler named Kenneth Williams, fell out of a second story window. The boy nearly died and was physically disabled for the rest of his life. Kellogg was astounded that, despite his own wealth, he could not find adequate medical care anywhere in southern Michigan. In a letter to a Battle Creek physician, Kellogg wrote that Kenneth's accident caused me to wonder what difficulties were in the past of needy parents who seek help for their children when, when, when catastrophe strikes, and I resolved to lend a hand when I can ever do so for such children. A central focus of Kellogg's philanthropy was it would be around children's health care. A year after opening its doors, the Kellogg Foundation launched the Michigan Community Health Project, focused on seven counties of southern Michigan. The 17-year initiative would build new hospitals in rural areas, help organize public health departments, and provided nurses and doctors from remote towns. In 1942, the State Department asked Kellogg to expand the program to Latin America as a wartime gesture of goodwill, which he happily complied to. In doing so, the foundation became, an interna- became international in scope before it even went national. Through his foundation, Kellogg also created the Ann J. Kellogg School, one of the first elementary schools to teach children with disabilities alongside children without disabilities. He would also represent one of the first companies to put nutritional labels on food. Also, he put include the inside the box prizes for children, mm-hmm. which is important. <laughs> but WK didn't stop there. During the Great Depression, while J.H. was being forced to lay off people, W.K. used his savings and directed the cereal plant to work four shifts, each lasting six hours. This gave pe- more people in Battle Creek the opportunity to work during this time. It is even said that he anonymously paid off mortgages at this time for those that were really struggling. The foundation is the seventh largest charity in the United States today and continues to support those that are needed the most, including movements like BLM and open border groups, much to the chagrin of Breitbart and other l- right-leaning news sites who argued that the foundation goes against everything W.K. believed, but that doesn't align with the directive that he gave future trustees, basically saying, use the money as you please as long as it promotes the health and happiness and well-being of children. Unfortunately, the brothers never reconciled. Having spent years fighting in court over cereal, later in his life, J.H. would actually write a letter to W.K. apologizing and seeking to reopen the relationship. But W.K. wouldn't receive this letter until J.H.'s death. Turns out that J.H.'s secretary thought that J.H. was demeaning himself in the letter and refused to send it. And a quote from W.K. Dollars do not create character. Something he often said, but he knew that dollars could help. And he charged his foundation today, one of the largest in the nation, with helping children face the future with confidence and health and with a strong, rooted security and the trust of this country and its institutions. So there's your happy ending. Yay. (laughs) Yeah, this just feels... Now I feel gross. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah, JH did some shitty things. He did some great things. He also did some shitty things. But his brother did a lot of great things. So there's that. Yeah. <laughs> Never was just depressed. I a little bit, yeah. It's <laughs> Nathan, I'm sure you have a happy story for us, right? 
No, no, I don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the whole Kellogg thing. Like, I was like, okay, oh, he's done some really cool stuff God. here. Like, why do I remember things being terrible? It's like, oh, oh, this is oh, oh that's because they yeah. were, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. And that's it for this week. And if you didn't get quite enough of JH's crazy ideas, um, I have a bunch of additional facts from one of his books, which you'll be able to find after the credit end credit song. Next week, we return for Nathan to tell us a story all about Gary Young and Young Living, a story about the development of a multi-million dollar MLM scheme that's still running today and all the lives that were ruined and continue to be ruined by it. As always, links, pictures, and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. To keep up with all things exceptional, be sure to follow us on Twitter or Facebook at The Human Exception. Have a story that you want us to cover, want to tell us that we're wrong, or you just want to say hi, you can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And to get in on the fun, come join us on our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend. book and the um, plain facts the un- young and old and young talks a lot about sex and stuff like that and I took some choice things out of here. Um, he believes that brunettes entered puberty earlier than bronze as did girls who had a nervous disposition. Um, he's, he had a lot to say about periods. Um, that women on the reg more or less had a dis- had more or less a disclination, disclination on society so they didn't want to be around people when they're on a period. No kidding. Um, and that each time it makes them especially susceptible to morbid influences and li- liable to serious derangements. Um, the feeling of malaise that usually accompanies a period is nature's way of telling a woman that she needs to rest. And there's no doubt that many young women have become permanently injured while at school by excessive mental taxation during their period. <laughs> um, indigenous women have painless births and are just overall in a much better constitution than white women because. When they have their period, they leave the lodge and spend time alone and rest. I'm gonna light something on fire. <laughs> I'm gonna fucking light it on fire. Um, so young lady allows herself to get wet or chilled or gets the feet wet just prior to or during menstruation runs the risk of imposing upon herself lifelong injury. Let's love this. <laughs> Um, he was super into. He was super fascinated by multiples. Um, like you know, he, he'd talk about animals and have uteruses designed for many offsprings, but how humans don't, despite these amazing historical in- instances that he referred to. So apparently, in Egypt, um, it was common for women to have seven or eight infants at a time. I don't know if there's any sort of source to that, but that is what he found. He heard from a traveler. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And then. In the 17th century, there was a traveler wrote that he saw in the year 1630 in a church based near the Hog a tablet on which inscribed stating that that a certain noted countess gave birth at once what? gave birth at once in the year 1276 to 365 infants who were all baptized and christened and the males were being called John and the females all called Elizabeth. They all died on the day of their birth with their mother. According to the account, and were buried in the church where a tablet was erected in their memory. <laughs> <laughs>
So a woman gave birth to 365 children on one day. All the males were John, all the females were Elizabeth. They all fucking died, and this church has like a tablet commemorating it. This has got to be real. Did I break you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just realized I let out the longest sigh ever, and then I was muted, and I just, <laughs> like... What the fuck? So, sexual life begins at puberty in the female and ends at about the age 45. If nature's law is disregarded and she continues sexual activity, she will suffer disease, premature decay, and location generation and local degenerations could occur. So, if we have sex class 45, we could get diseases or premature decay. Fuck y'all, I got less than a decade left. I'm <laughs> dicked. Um, the primary object of marriage was undoubtedly, undoubtedly to pres the preservation of the race, of human race. Um, he was horrified at the countries of legal ages of marriage, which is actually really interesting. The Romans believed that um, the women could get married as early as 13, men as 15. Lycurgus, which was in Greek, was 17 for women, 37 for men. Plato believed 20 for women, 30 for men. Prussia was into 15 for women, 19 for men. Austria was 16 for women and 20 for men. France was 16 for women, 18 for men, but he recommends 20 and 24. Um, he strongly believed that large age difference doomed a marriage from the beginning. An old man who forms a union with a young girl scarce out of her teens or even younger can scarcely have any elevated motive for this action, and he certainly exposes himself to the greatest risk of sudden death while ensuring his premature decay. <laughs> I Which I support this notion. The first, <laughs> just not the logic behind it, other than <laughs> ew. We therefore are forced to conclusions that the children of old men have an inferior chance of life, and facts daily observed confirm our deductions. Uh... Look what are the progeny of such marriages. What is the value? As far as I have seen, it is the worst kind. Spoiled childhood, feeble and crushed youth, extravagant manhood, early and premature death. Yep, it's great. Weed. Um, so the reproductive act is the most exhaustive of all vital acts, and its effect upon an undeveloped, underdeveloped person is to retard growth, weaken the constitution, and dwarf the intellect. So don't have sex with somebody that's too young, as you may retard their, de their development and dwarf their intellect. Um, so he had a whole argument against polygamy. There's a lot of people who are like, well, there's more women than men. He's like, well, yeah, there are more women than men. You know, but it's not that significantly great. Um, so there's the reason we need to get polygamy involved here. So, you know, as the remedy for this is just enforced celibacy. <laughs> if all the men were paired and the women that have left out deserve no consideration, as there's a large number of women who are unfit to marry and would be injured by doing so, making them more wretched than they already are. All right, dude. Calm down. <laughs> yeah, wow. That, mm... Okay. He had a pretty good list of of um, people who should not get married. Also, people oh. with serious serious diseases of characters and bo or body is a sin against the offspring who have the right to be born well. So, if you have a serious disease of character or body, don't reproduce. Okay, um, oh, never mind. He never got. He never had kids, so that's fine. Yeah. Uh, persons that have a chance of, of a hereditary disease in their family should not marry those with the same chance. Should cousins marry? They can, but probably shouldn't. 
uh, persons with severe congenital deformities, criminals, persons who are greatly disproportionate in, si disproportionate in size, persons of great age disparity, people who are really different, and marriage between widely different races is unadvisable. Experience shows that such marriages are not only conducive are not only not conducive to happiness, but are detrimental to the offspring. It has been proven beyond room for question that mulattoes are not as long lived as other blacks or whites, as either blacks or whites. Keep your races within each other. So yeah. Thanks, friend. Jeez. Um, people who can't sustain themselves or a family, and persons whose morals character moral character will not bear the closest scrutiny. I love this one. Um, indigenous people had an entire absence of vices, diseases, of, and diseases of civilization without the help of Christianity before we showed up. Meaning that there's something in the way that civilized something in civilized life that spawns all these things. <laughs> so it's like the native, the Indian, the indigenous people were totally fine before we showed up. Yeah, they were. Buddy, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> um. Men, in whatever condition we find him, is more or less depraved. His appetites, his tastes, his habits, even his bodily functions are perverted. Wealthy women could do more to cure social evil by adopting plain tire than all the civil authorities by passing license laws or regulating ordinances. Have not Christian women a duty here? <laughs> so if all wealthy women just, you know, dress prudishly, all of society's evils would be gone. Just cover up their, those shoulders. Oh, and the ankles. Don't forget the ankles. And the ankles. And the yeah. Ankles. Oh, my God. How could you forget that? Maybe the wrists, too. Just, you know. Just to be safe. Just to um, cover all the bases. Ugh. As for women, the taste of novel reading is like that for liquor or opium. It is never satiated, and it grows with gratification. A confirmed novel reader is almost as difficult to reform as a confirmed inebriate or opium eater. The influence upon the mind is most damaging and pernicious. It not only destroys the love for solid, useful reading, but excites the emotions, and in many cases keeps the passions in a perfect fever of excitement. Girls shouldn't read. Keeps the kids them way too excited. Yeah, titillating those words, man. Yeah, gotta, gotta watch out for those. Um, yeah, and not only that, when a woman is gestating and, you know, carrying the child... It's very important to uh, the perfect environment. And like if she gets, you know, waited on too much though, and like <laughs> and taking care of very like and she's fretful and complaining, the child will come out the same way. Um so like if you want a beautiful child, surround her with beautiful things. <laughs> if you want a smart child, have her read um read things of a pleasant nature. <laughs> okay. But you don't want your women to read. Yeah. I'm but unless you're trying to produce a good child. So confused. I think I think the onus is on the man to read while the woman plugs her ears <laughs> to the baby. <laughs> yeah, that works. Um, and after birth, the mother still possesses a molding influence on the under the, upon the development of the child through lacteal secretion. So. Um, she still has an opportunity to try and make the child better after birth through her breast milk <laughs> as long as she's practicing good things. Okay. Jesus Christ. Okay. 
So um, he believed that crime and moral vacancy was hereditary. Um, and he found in one case that there was over a period of 75 years, five sisters that had a family of 1,200 persons as they had all paired with men whose fathers were a, an idle or whose father was an idle, thriftless hunter, a hard drinker, and licentious. The 1,200 persons would then claim these crimes. So basically, um, there's going to be a list of crimes here. The numbers, there, there is overlap as some of these people committed multiple crimes. But 280 of them would be paupers. 798 of them would have years of pauperism. 140 were criminals. 750 of them would have years of infamy. 60 were thieves. 7 were murderers. 165 were prostitutes and adulteresses. 91 were Ill illegitimate children. 480 got syphilis. And the cost of the nice. state through all this was $1.3 million. Uh, uh, uh. He believed that there was no argument that could be made against the concept of hereditary morals due to this example. But he was uncertain what the best course of action would be. He goes on to say that those born deaf, blind, crippled, or idiotic are the result of weak parents that ignore their moral responsibility to not reproduce. Wow. 